This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. University of Minnesota Press and Jason Puskar's newest book titled The Switch, an off-and-on history of digital humans, is a 2023 investigation into the life of switches. I am your host, Nathan Moore. Joining us is the author of The Switch and, to many of us, flicking on and off everyday devices holds little meaning, but to Jason Puskar, It is a leap in our developed world and its machinery. To Dr. Puskar, what was it about your background and research experience that made you the right person to research the issue of switches in our modern world? Uh, Well, first, Nathan, thank you so much for having me on. It's a pleasure to meet you and a pleasure to talk with you today. Um, uh, It's hard to say when you look back. I think sometimes you realize at the end of a project that you've been thinking about these things for longer than maybe you first realized. I remember when I was a kid, about seven years old, riding in the car with my dad and um, asking him, why do we have steering wheels to drive the car rather than buttons? And um, I'm sure he gave me a a good answer, but um, it suggests that I was wondering about control interfaces from a very early age. And at some point it came back. I think the uh, the uh, bigger answer is that I've tended to work on topics related to the technical, the scientific, or the mathematical uh, in my academic career. My first book was about American fiction and the idea of chance, but a lot of it was actually about the insurance industry and how new ways of managing chance change the stories we tell about it. Uh, so I think I'm just drawn to the places where technical knowledge meets everyday life, and the switch was a great example of that for me. I guess the other thing to say is maybe that I have kind of an appetite for the little things that might seem really pedestrian to most people, like insurance. Um, but I tend to find these the most fascinating of all, mostly just because we take them so for granted. And, you know, switches are a great example of that. They're absolutely everywhere. We can get through so few minutes of the day without them. Uh, and then, but you think, well, what could there possibly 
be to say about them. Um, but the truth is, I guess I think that Marshall McLuhan, the great media scholar, had it right when he said that the one thing a fish knows nothing about is water, which seems like it makes no sense at first because you expect a fish to know everything about water. But what he meant was that the things that we're most surrounded by are the things that become most invisible to us, that water just becomes transparent. And I think switches are a little bit like that. And I think those are the kinds of things that, that I'm, that I'm, those are the kinds of things that I'm drawn to. Switches to people are a lot like water to fish. And those are the kinds of topics that tend to hold my attention. And so what about interdisciplinarity? Where does that stand in your book? And why is English literature so vital to your argument as maybe history might also be? Uh, well, uh, switches are connected to so many different kinds of things that they really forced me to be broad and to look in all sorts of different directions, uh, many of which I had no idea I'd be reading about and learning about when I started. This is why on one page uh, I'm writing about Greek harmonic theory, and on, a, on another page I'm looking at 1950s advertisements for garage door openers or television remote controls. So it's a book that's a, a kind of a big synthesis kind of a book, uh, and it has to bring together all these widely disparate areas of knowledge and culture and practice. And that's where it really gets interesting to me, because I think that one of the things that's so strange about switches is just that we use this exact same gesture with our hands to control so many wildly different activities. You know, things that we, that 100 years ago, 200 years ago, we would, we would have had to develop uh, entirely different practices to deal with, different coordinations, different levels of strength and ability. You know, simple things like calculating math, cooking food, playing games, but also launching missiles, starting your car. Uh, locking doors and writing, right? All these things used to require drastically different ways of moving your body around in the world, just different practices. And I just think it's so extraordinary that we've developed a world in which we do all of these things in the exact same way. And it's the switch that allows us to do that. So this book kind of has to follow the wires out from each and every switch into all of these really different contexts. And um, one of the great pleasures of writing the book was getting to learn about things that um, I had no expectation I'd ever have to. Um, as for art and literature, um, uh, they're really important in this book. Um, uh, and they, that really includes everything from surrealist art to photography, to advertisement, to television and film. And I think for me, as a, I, I am a originally a literary scholar, though I work more in media studies these days, um, you know, I think that uh, I'm, I'm very persuaded by the argument that the one thing that art really does for us is to defamiliarize uh, what we already know, that it, it productively estranges us from the stuff we take for granted. Um, uh, it makes it show up again. It makes you see it for what it is. And so when you're dealing with something like switches uh, that are so all around you and so taken for granted, sometimes it really helps to see how they get represented in art or in literature, because that can just shift them a little bit out of the ordinary and let you see that what you're doing with them in your everyday life is actually pretty extraordinary uh, and that you shouldn't take it for granted. So, you know, I look at exhibits in art and literature, such as the control panel on Darth Vader's chest or the Star Trek phaser. Um, uh, and, you know, when you kind of shift into that realm of art or the, liter or the literary, 
you do get a little bit further away from actual literal fact, but I guess I think you get closer to the deeper truths about why we think and act the way we do. Your Your master's is from Oxford and you also got your doctorate from Harvard. So I want to know, and our audience would be interested in knowing what, how, how have scholars responded to your work, whether at your current institution or elsewhere? Well, I am very lucky these days to be in a creative, open-minded, and extremely energetic department at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. And I've been here for 17 years, and that has been really the most formative institution uh, of my life. And so um, uh, uh, I credit my education for a great deal, but you know, this book would not have happened if I didn't have the uh, the colleagues and the just the really great intellectual environment I've been lucky enough to live in for the last almost two decades. Um, and the book really is as much a product of that as it is, of, you know, my own idiosyncratic um, interests and abilities. Uh, I guess the other thing I'd say is that, you know, all the talks I've been giving over the last few years um, about this topic, I don't think there's been a single one where someone didn't come up to me afterwards and say, um, have you ever thought about this kind of a switch or this kind of a button and how this works? And, you know, I realized pretty early on that giving talks about switches is not like giving talks about Hegel. It's not specialized. Uh, It's not accessible only by an audience of experts. And in fact, everybody is an expert on switching because everybody uses switches all day long, just like me. So, you know, I think the uh, you ask how have scholars responded. I mean, I would just say with incredible generosity and with a willingness to share their own insights drawn from their own experience. Um, and that pointed me in so many productive directions uh, over the course of the years when I was working on this book. So, um, you know, I, uh, I had never worked on something that had uh, so much um, where people could access it so easily. Right from their own individual daily experience, and um, having benefited so much from doing that, I, I, I hope I can, I hope I can do it again. When we think of switches or other normal device features, other technology might also stand out. To me, I think of alarm clocks or child-resistant packaging. What else made it into your book? about the switch outside of switches? Uh, well, are you asking what kinds of switches, what other kinds of applications for switches? Yes, or other uh, devices altogether. Yeah, well, you know, there are all the things that the switches are connected to, first of all, right? And so every switch is connected to some other apparatus, some other form of automation. And so the kind of the endpoint. Um, the endpoint of the switch is often drastically different um, case by case. You know, in one, it produces sound from a musical instrument, and in another, it launches a weapon, and yet another one, it turns on a light, right? And so uh, uh, all of those different kinds of mechanical contexts had to come in and, at different points. Um, you know, but I would also say that just the sheer number of applications of different kinds of switches was uh, a great surprise to me. And, you know, I, I started off having a kind of sense for how many switches there were in daily life, but I didn't really know until I counted 
And I went through my whole day and counted elevator buttons and crosswalk buttons and accessibility buttons on doors and the dashboard of the car and the keyboard on the computer and domestic appliances and cell phones and remote controls and so on. And once you just start noticing, they're just absolutely everywhere. So one day early on, I counted how many switches and buttons I used in a single day. Uh, and it came out to about 30,000. And for me, a lot of those were on the keyboard because I tend to sit at my desk and type and write and email most of the day. But for other people, that could be a, a you know a construction worker with a nail gun um, or a cashier at the register and an accountant um, with a calculator. Um, I think we're all pushing thousands and thousands of buttons every single day. And um, so I've tried to just kind of uh, honor the the diversity and the fullness of switching techniques that we have in our lives by trying to include as many different ones as possible. Why was the move from analog to digital a significant step in designing switches? Well, I guess, I don't know. I guess I would, might say it the other way around. I mean, I think that switches might be a significant step in our culture shift from analog to digital. Um, uh, you know, that, that shift to the digital, I think, and this book argues, started in earnest really about a century before modern computers, which we associate with the digital today. You know, uh, but really, since about 1840, switches have been proliferating like mad. And that's kind of the prehistory of the, of the computational digital that this book tries to tell. And all of this is happening even before we have a word, even before we have the word switch. They don't even know what to call these things. When you look at mid-19th century patents, uh, late 19th century patents, they just refer to what we call switches as something like automatic circuit opening and closing devices, right? Because <laughs> they don't even have a word for it yet. Um, and they, they borrowed it um, by analogy from railroad switch tracks. So, you know, I guess what I would say is that it was the advent of these little tiny gizmos that we now can't live without starting in the early to mid-19th century that helped create the digital and gave birth to the digital. Uh, and, um, you know, to see that happening roughly a century before modern computing is to recover something important that happened in our daily lives, that happened to our bodies, uh, uh, and so on. I might, maybe I'll just add too, if you don't mind, that, um, you know, the analog and the digital are really kind of slippery terms. Um, uh, we kind of take for granted that we know which is which and, and what they apply to, but it's pretty hard to draw a bright line between them sometimes. And it's also true that we never didn't really have the word analog either until we invented the word digital. Until we had this culture of the digital, there was no need to talk about the analog. And so these things, these terms kind of appeared in only late in the mid 20th century. So they're pretty new concepts even today. And we tend to define the analog as all those things that involve continuous gradations or flows, you know, anything gradual. So my gas stove is analog in that the dial gradually lets more or less gas flow to the burner. There's no strict on or off. But the digital uh, tends to be defined uh, as things that are chopped up into discrete units, typically rough, roughly equal units, you know, like um, pixels on your screen or the um, ones and zeros in binary code and digital music, 
which is why we call our computers digital. They've chopped up information uh, and action into discrete units, which are at the bottom for them, binary, as well as digital, ones and zeros, on and off. So, you know, in being in becoming interested in what did the digital look like before binary code was operating computers? Um, where did it take hold? How did it operate? Uh, uh, I was led into the whole world of binary switching as it gradually grew up out of starting really with modern telegraphy around 1840 uh, into writing and then finally into uh, electrification and only then into computers where analog processes, the kinds of things that you would have done every day would have been analog, right? Gradual, continuous. And one by one, they became more and more digital with on and off logics, um, without flow. Maybe the most obvious example of this would just be how we write. Uh, in 1850, writing was this flowing, continuous line of script. It was analog in all the ways that matter. But by the early 20th century, typewriting had made it into something that was digital, one click per letter. One broken up action, everyone equally sized, equally weighted, equally spaced. And that shift to the digital, this book argues, is happening even in technologies like typewriting that, you know, that aren't even electrical yet. But they're, they're bringing the analog into more and more binary, um, into more and more binary forms, right? Like um, with a typewriter, even an old mechanical typewriter. To push the key is to almost, but not completely, have letter or no letter. There's not much in between. You can't draw half of an A like you can with a pen. You can make it a little lighter or darker still, so there's some analog left, but electric typewriters took care of that. Now you can, uh, now the, every letter is weighted exactly the same. And then, of course, computers make it even more uniform still. So it's that gradual process from the analog to the digital that I think switches are really instrumental in affecting. The language of opposition, when it comes up in your book about switches, is it a mandatory view for the reader or are binary actions about switches a nuance that can be ignored? I don't know if it's mandatory, but uh, I, I do think that the binary, that binary opposition defines a binary switch at least kind of conceptually, right? It's a, a switch is organized as if it were making strict choices between on or off at the most basic level. Uh, so, you know, conceptually, that's what a switch does. It pressures action toward the conceptual extremes of on and off and with nothing in the middle, right? Um, but I, I, I agree that that's, in practice, in terms of the materiality of a switch, that's not exactly how they work. I just used the example of a, of a typewriter key on an old mechanical typewriter. You know, it's not strictly binary. If you push the letter key harder, you'll get a darker letter. You'll make a louder sound. Um, it does have analog sensitivity, and there's gradation between the extremes of letter and no letter. Um, but it's clear that the typewriter is aspiring toward something like pure binarism. And those other, you know, the later elaborations of typewriting in 
first electrical typewriters and then computers, they succeeded in eradicating more and more of that analog middle ground between letter and no letter, step by step. But that's not to say that even in... Um, you know, even in a modern electrical switch that you've completely eliminated that, you know, they seem instantaneous. But electricity moves at the speed of light, and that's a, a measurable speed. And so what's actually happening with a switch is that there's still a little bit of gray area in there, right? Um, it's just too rapid for us to notice. Uh, it's below the threshold of human sensitivity. So, you know, probably in the material world, there's probably no such thing as strict binarism in terms of a machine with only two alternatives and nothing in between. You can get close, but I, I'm not too sure you can ever get there. I think strict binarism is purely conceptual. It happens in something like the code of, of binary code of ones and zeros, where there really is nothing in between. But as soon as you turn that into a machine, it will become contaminated one way or another with the residues of the analog that um, tend to be found in nature. What is your historical viewpoint? Where did this originate from where and where does the center of its influence lie? Well, that's a tough question. I mean, in one way, you can look back and see kind of, you know, early switches. So I would point to things like the early telegraphy, the Morse Vale transmitter um, around 1840, you know, looks very much like a simple electrical contact switch. Um, but it's tricky because there are other things that would also qualify. Um, and so origins are just hard to define. Um, you can think back, for instance, to uh, earlier things in the telegraph that seem like switches, like the triggers of guns. You know, a trigger of a gun is finger activated, um, binary, right? There's no functional position between shooting and not shooting. Um, uh, and so in that way, though we call it a trigger, you know, it's basically a switch. Um, even before that, the same kind of uh, release of a crossbow medieval or even much earlier, the early Chinese crossbows, like a gun, they just store energy. And then you have a small finger activated interface that will release the energy all at once. Um, so that, you know, there's that whole realm of, of weaponry long before electrification um, or the 19th century technology that I try to trace. But there's another realm too, I think, that's, that's very early, and that would be musical instruments. Um, you know, very early organs where pressing a key just opens a valve. These date back to Greece, um, classical Greece, uh, plenty in the Middle Ages, you know, or harpsichords or clavichords where those are early keyboard instruments in Europe that they don't really have the same velocity sensitivity as a modern piano. Um, uh, harpsichord plucks a string, right? And not a lot changes depending on how hard or soft you press the key. And so those are also pretty close. So too, though, would be um, uh, the valves on some wind instruments, like flutes. And if you include a flute, you can go back tens of thousands of years to Paleolithic bone flutes with little finger holes on the top, where if you're blowing through and you just apply your finger to one of those holes, the pitch will change. Right? Feels a lot like a switch to me. Though no one would ever really call it that. So the, you know, the capacity to do things like switching has been there for a long time. It's just that it 
it proliferated so wildly starting in the 19th century and has all but taken over today. So, you know, I don't know about a single origin, but I guess I think um, we might have a symbolic origin uh, in the two examples I just gave, uh, weapons and musical instruments, pianos and guns. I kind of think of pianos and guns as the uh, ancient progenitors of this whole family line that produced all the switches we know today. The keyboard instruments are the artsy mother of all the switches we know today, and the gun is its violent or their violent father. And we can still see a lot of family resemblance from both sides of the family in a lot of the switches we use today, including in our keyboards, including in our remote controls. Um, they both still bear the traces of um, musical instruments and guns. How is phenomenology and pragmatism a philosophical point of interest for you? Uh, well, I, I've always been a fairly practical person who likes to work with his hands. And I think that is, in truth, one of the things that drew me to pragmatism in graduate school. Um, I've always loved William James um, and John Dewey. Um, but pragmatism was especially informative for this because it, I mean, among the many other things that pragmatism is smart about, it's smart about the ways in which what we do helps shape what we think rather than the other way around. So in other words, you know, we all like to think that we have this kind of mental world in which we come up with ideas. Uh, and then we put those ideas into practice. We do things with the ideas, right? So ideas precede action. Um, and that's true in some areas, uh, especially when we've identified universal or absolute rules about how the world works or when we think we have. Um, but pragmatism tends to wonder whether it might not go the other direction. You know, maybe we just do things, pragmatism wonders, mostly out of habit or because it tends to work out most of the time when we do it. And based on those consistent results, we come up with ideas about what's true, even universally and eternally true, even if it really isn't. So uh, pragmatism really trusts us to start with practice, you know, uh, not with universal rules. And it tends to hold truth claims pretty lightly. It's a little bit skeptical that those things that we regard as absolutely and eternally true mm, are absolutely and eternally true. Maybe they're just what works for now, right here, right now, but in another place or time, it all might shake out differently. And then we'll have drastically different truths. And the long view of history does kind of confirm that people have been very comfortable changing their truths pretty drastically from century to century, if not from year to year. So, you know, pragmatism lets us see that truths are just rules of thumb about how things tend to work, but they also let me it also kind of authorizes researchers like me to put the machines first because the machines shape our practices. And it's through inculcating practices, what we do with our hands, what we do with our bodies, that might be where our ideas come from rather than the other way around. And that's a, a part of what this book is arguing, that you know the reason to care about switches is not just that they're fun and interesting when you look more closely at their at the variety of applications but that uh, fundamentally when you surround yourself with switches as we have and when you accomplish so much of what you do through switches you really are changing the truths you hold about the world 
Uh, and I think the biggest truth that switches um, foster, create even, is the is the the truth that so many of us take for granted, all of us do at some level, that we are individuals who are fundamentally autonomous and can make a difference, right? And surely sometimes we do, but maybe not as much as we like to think. So, um, you, you know, I kind of think of, of switches in that way as having this ideological effect. They flatter us that we're individual and powerful human agents, and they help us to experience ourselves like that. So, you know, if you think about it, there really aren't very many two-person switches. There just aren't. Switches tend to be for individuals, and they start and stop action very cleanly so that when you're, whenever you're turning on a switch, it's very clear that you turned on the switch and not someone else because you're not collaborating to do that. And it also tends to be very clear what the action was that you started and stopped. Right? And those two things go a long way toward confirming for you that you're not mixed up with anybody else. You're an individual and that you're a really powerful individual. You can make things happen, big things happen, right? all on your own, even at a distance, instantaneously, powerfully, powerfully, and effortlessly. Right. And so for me, a switch is, I don't know, you can kind of think of it like a mirror that reflects an image of yourself back to you at twice its normal size. It magnifies you. It makes you feel bigger and better than probably you really are. And that's incredibly comforting. Right? And so to get back to pragmatism, right? pragmatism is a method, an approach that allows us to you know, trust to the practices to see where our ideas come from, rather than just saying, we have these ideas, let's see where our practices come from. Because sometimes it's the ideas that really are the things that resulted. And how would you say switches are part of the post-human or cyborg narrative? Oh, well, I mean, uh, deeply and pervasively. Um, you know, these switches that are all around us are are kind of part of the mechanical apparatus that we've all applied to our persons to help um, uh, to help prop us up. You know, the subtitle of this book is an off and on history of digital humans. And uh, uh, the, the implication there is that, you know, to be human, you actually have to make yourself human through technology. You have to humanize yourself. And so, I mean, I'll give you some examples for myself. I, I have a right knee that's held together by two titanium screws. I have a mouthful of dental fillings and I can't read without my glasses. Right? So all of these prostheses that I have to wear allow me to do the things that make me feel fully and capably human, right? I can walk and get around. I can eat normal food uh, and I can read. And if I didn't have those, I really would be fairly disabled in the world. And I'd probably be treated inhumanely as, as a result in the way that those people who are disabled often are treated. Right? But I'm not because I've remedied, I've remedied these disabilities with all sorts of things that are um, you know, invisible, hidden, uh, or taken for granted. I mean, the glasses aren't invisible, but I see right through them and I forget I even have them on. It just feels like me being able to see. And I think that the switches are kind of like that, you know, that the, the prostheses that help us 
that help us function as human, but really are cyborg appendages, um, those, um, those are sometimes outside of our body too, not just screwed to the inside of our knee. And when we have switches all around us, all around us, what we've really done is built this incredible environment that flatters us at every turn about how powerful we really are, how fast we are, how instantaneously we can act, how how distant our actions can be from our bodies, um, how effortless it is for us to do things. And yet we're kind of wearing this mech suit, this cyborg mech suit that's all around us uh, and that we operate mostly with our fingers. So, you know, just as I have titanium screws holding together my fragile knee, we all kind of have a world where switches hold together our fragile conceptions of ourselves. What is in store for the future of switches that you know about? Well, they're always changing, that's for sure. Um, you know, they they never seem to go away, but they don't quite stay the same form ever. I just saw um, yesterday in the New York Times, they had a story about a new wearable tech device called the AI pin. I don't know if you saw that. Um, it's a kind of voice activated digital assistant and it clips onto your shirt like a lapel pin. But it, it, it And so you can talk to it and it will tell you things. But it also, the part that I was most interested in um, was it has this little projector and you put your hand up and it will shine a little interface onto the palm of your hand that you can interact with by touching different fingers to each other, exactly like you're touching a button. And Right, so here's a here's a wearable piece of technology that projects light onto your hand and lets you one finger use another one as a button to click on. And there have been other versions of this as well. Like Microsoft had an experimental system called SkinPut, where you used your forearm and it had a kind of some kind of microphone and it could tell very precisely where you were touching your forearm. So you know you could put a number pad there or uh, anything, and you could use your forearm to act as a keypad as a keypad. So there are all sorts of ways in which, um, you know, I think that buttons are continuing and switches in general, are, I think they're continuing to push the limits of integration with the human body to continue your last question about, about kind of cyborg dimensions to all this, um, more and more intimate contact, less and less effort from the user because um, buttons from the beginning, they've always aspired to be as effortless as possible. Um, typewriters are a good example. Hard manual, little less hard with the electric, almost effortless with the um, my Mac keyboard on my desktop computer, and then with the touch screen that I type on on my phone, no force is required at all, right? And so I think we continue to see that, but going even further now so that the body itself kind of becomes a switch. So, you know, everyone keeps saying, too, that switches are going to go away, that they're old-fashioned, um, and that there are better ways like voice activation or um, uh, like the gestural controls of the Nintendo Wii, right, which were much hyped for a few years, but the market share of the Wii is back down, and people are playing video games predominantly on consoles again with switch and button-based controllers. So I, I think the future of switches to me is really that they're here to stay. And uh, if someone tells you that, you know, before long, you'll be controlling your mouse pointer with your brain or something like that, I'd say don't believe the hype. We seem to like controlling our things with our fingers even more. If you were to find the perfect description of the switch, what device would you use to embody the world of switches? <laughs> that is a tough one, Nathan. <laughs> uh, 
well, I think if I if I have to pick just one, and I assume your question is going to force me to, I, I guess I think about children and their fascination with buttons and the way in which, you know, we learn we learn a, a switch and button love from a very early age. And I, you know, I don't know if some of your listeners' children were like mine, completely obsessed with buttons and switches. But the the one that they were most obsessed with was the elevator button. And there seems to be something kind of primal about the elevator button with children. You touch this thing, it lights up, and a minute later, a magic room appears that you can get in and it will take you somewhere else. I mean, for a child especially, there's an amazing demonstration of, of what a little switch can do. Single touch of the finger, wildly exaggerated transformation of your whole environment. And to the child who can do so little, the child can say, I did that. I made that whole thing happen. So I think maybe the elevator button is the, is the thing. It seems most invested with the magical theater of childhood where you don't quite know how things work. And yet um, this small pedestrian little interface can be so beguiling that I know my two kids would have murdered each other to be the first one to push it if we didn't intervene. So we talked about analog and digital. Now, what about automatic versus manual switches? Is there a point in having non-touch switches? And is there a place in your research for describing switches that work without human interaction? Yeah, definitely. There, there are so many switches. You know, I really, because I, this book is mostly interested in agency and human agency, right? How did people come to believe that they have this thing called human agency? Why do we believe this thing, given that it seems kind of implausible if you look at it too, too closely, or at least a lot more complicated than we like to assume? So I tended to look at the kinds of switches that you you push very voluntarily and deliberately um, with your hands. But uh, as you, your question implies, there are many, many other kinds of switches like the, um, you know, the light in the, the, the light, the switch, the light switch in the refrigerator door. You don't have a choice not to push that switch. If you want something in the refrigerator, you must um, activate that switch as well. Uh, uh, or at the other extreme, um, maybe this, the hidden switch underneath your car's front seat, where if you try to drive off without fastening your seatbelt, your car will make such loud and annoying noises that you will fasten your seatbelt before long. Um, so, you know, these are just a couple of examples of, of um, switches that really act more as sensors. Uh, I think, too, of the, the grocery store sensor at the door. You know, you approach the door, it senses you. Uh, and it opens the door. So they're binary in function, but they're triggered inadvertently, which is really different. Um, yeah, and I think, you know, if, you've, if you think about how some of those, those inadvertent switches work, you can, you can trace them back to slightly different sources. So, you know, that, that seatbelt sensor in your car, you could probably trace that back to things like early binary traps, like mouse traps. Um, you know, it's a passive sensor that detects a certain kind of presence, and it's actually oppositional to you. It forces you to do what something else wants, right? If you're the mouse, to be trapped in the box. Um, but in this case, it's for you to put on your seatbelt. And so most of the switches that I look, look at are 
um, you know, they're, they're flattering you by facilitating your will or what you think of as your will. Um, but it's true that there's another range of switches that either anticipate your will without you making any kind of conscious choice, like the refrigerator light or the grocery store door sensor, um, and then other ones that actively oppose it, that seem more like traps, like the seatbelt sensor in your car. And so plenty more to say about those two, but I was really limited to agency, though I'm, I'm very curious about how those things work as well. Can you describe the QWERTY keyboard then and now? Sure. Yeah. Uh, I, I live in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, where the QWERTY keyboard was invented. And so I take not just scholarly interest, but a great deal of local pride in this apparatus, since we none of us can really live without it. I, I, I think you asked to describe it then and now. Um, and that's sort of easy because it's the same. It might be the only piece of Victorian hardware that survived 150 years, basically unchanged. I mean, obviously, the mechanics underneath the surface have changed a little bit, but the layout, the form, um, it's it's pretty much the same. Um, It's hard to think of anything else from the 1870s or even somewhat later that has survived uh, so intact. None of us ride a bicycle with a giant front wheel anymore. Our bikes have changed. We don't crank our phone and speak into a horn that sticks out of the wall. Telephones have changed. We don't communicate electronically by tapping out Morse code messages. Electronic communication has changed. And yet here we are in 2023, exactly, I should mention, 150 years after the invention of the QWERTY keyboard. This year is its anniversary. Here we are typing on this interface that looks almost exactly as it did in 1873 when it settled into its permanent form. And I, I think that's really extraordinary. Um, uh, we could type in so many different ways. Early, most writing machines in the 19th century before the Scholes and Glidden typewriter of 1873 and 1874 finally succeeded, most of them actually had piano keyboards. Um, we don't use piano keyboards today. And even if you were to opt for a different sequence of letters, like the Dvorak layout, which is more efficient, Still, the form of the keyboard with its irregular staggering of keys and its three banks of letters and one bank of numbers, all of that is still exactly as it was in 1873. So, you know, I like to think of the, the uh, computer keyboard on my 2023 Mac laptop, you know, as the most steampunk thing probably I've ever seen, including in movies. Right? If you actually step back and look at it, it is Victorian, Victorian form. Uh, welded on to computer age function. And, you know, we call that steampunk, the steampunk aesthetic in science fiction, where uh, Victorian forms um, operate high-tech machinery. And yet here's one that's right under our fingertips every day, and we, we tend not to notice that. Without agency, are humans then switchable? In other words, can humans be manipulated or influenced into switching their lives in some way that is neither mechanical nor tangible? Yeah, I mean, I suppose so. Sure. Um, I, I guess what I would say is that, um, you know, when you say switching our lives, you know, even to even to refer to it that way is to model human change on a technological function. Because to say, you know, can humans 
uh, switch our lives in some way. Uh, nobody ever said that until really until the 20th century. Right? We never said, I'm going to switch careers or I'm going to switch planes or trains. Right? Nobody said, nobody used switch as a synonym for change. Right? Uh, that came up only by analogy. Once we had surrounded ourselves with mechanical binary switches, people actually started thinking of themselves as switchable too. And they started talking about, say, career choice, right? Which is a hugely complicated, messy thing full of ambivalence and luck and second guessing and uh, gradual transformations. But we started to become able to think of that not with the full complexity of, of, of what career change really is, but as just a binary alternative. I used to be an accountant, and now I am an actuary. I, um, and that's really, I think, a profound change in how humans conceive of themselves. Uh, you know, to look at just the vocabulary of change and how people have applied it to themselves and to notice that they had no word for that before the 20th century. That really helps us see how we've uh, organized our own self-conception as a kind of extension of the tools we use. Uh, and how we think of our own change and development in much more binary ways than, than I think we generally used to. I mean, if you think about, um, you know, it's not that there aren't big all or nothing changes in human life. Um, um, take marriage for an example. Uh, but, you know, you can't be halfway married. You can't be a little bit married. You can't be partially married. You are either married or you're not married. But in those kinds of determinations, I think human societies have often built in huge amounts of ritual to make sure there's no ambiguity. You've got to read the bands. Someone gets to stand up and uh, speak now or forever hold their peace. Um, there's no ambiguity that you accidentally got married. right? And yet in the age of switching, stark determinations between one state and another have so come to seem the norm that we conceive of ourselves doing it without all that ritual built in, without all the carefulness that, say, a marriage ritual requires. Uh, and that's a really profound change for how people think of themselves and think of what they do in life. As a natural science enthusiast or a science and technology enthusiast, would some scientists be able to locate organic or natural switches in our environment that are similar to man-made switches? Oh, that's a great question. It, because it gets at a really interesting debate from um, the 1950s uh, in the field of cybernetics. Uh, there was this huge debate, and this is right around the time where the terms analog and digital were coming into being. And some of the early practitioners and theorists of cybernetics um, were trying to figure out what were the qualities of the analog and the digital? What were the limits? And one thing they argued about quite a bit was, which one is more natural? And it settled out pretty quickly that the vast majority said that the analog is natural and that the digital is a kind of cultural add-on. The digital is what humans do with the flowing, formless, raw materials of nature. So that's obviously way too simplistic of a way to think about it. But in general, that was, I think, 
the consensus. But there were dissenters. And um, one of them, um, a, a, a neuropsychologist named Ralph Sherard, um, suggested that, no, the digital is just as natural. And um, he pointed to synapses in the brain, which he said were he alleged roughly like a biological switch. And so we shouldn't think of the digital as the kind of the add-on to culture uh, or the add-on to nature. We should think of, we should think of both of these things as um, um, ambiguously natural or cultural. Uh, You know, and I, I, with some reservations, I think I side with that view to see one is culture and one is nature is clearly too simple. But, you know, this was slightly before um, DNA had been described and had they had the example of recombinant DNA using just four coded proteins, they would be, they'd be even closer to a biological example at the very core of life on Earth of how, um, uh, of how life might have something like a switching process uh, uh, built in. Or, you know, now we talk about turning genes on and off. Right. Um, Maybe we turn genes on and off or maybe we're just applying a mechanical metaphor to something that happens in the body. But I I think it's I think it's at least debatable that there there are some biological functions that are pretty close to what we're doing with switches in our mechanical built environment. You know, especially if we recognize that the switches in our in our built world aren't actually as strictly binary as we like to think. If you concede that, then there's a lot of things happening at the level of biology that seem pretty switch-like too. But I, I, maybe I'll just one thing to add is that it does seem significant that there are very few things above the microscopic nature, or the, the microscopic scale that are that seem switch-like. Um, it, it seems telling that all the examples I thought of and that Gerard thought of uh, in the 1950s are internal microscopic chemical right there about protein combinations they're things you can't see and do uh, and so at the scale of the mechanical at the scale of the human hand uh, it becomes much much harder to find contenders all right can you tell your new books network audience more about the physics oh sorry let's do that one over can you tell the New Books Network audience more about what figures, statistics, or illustrations that you inputted into your book? I personally liked figure number five with Bothius and Pythagoras at the calculating counting table. <laughs> I like that one a lot too from Gregor Reich around 1500. Yeah. Um, um, yeah, and that was one. That's one of those finds where sometimes you just get lucky paging through old treatises on mathematics, uh, and I've found that um, that great illustration. I, I, I there, are, I think I had so much fun finding the um, illustrations in this book, and I, you know, I think if I have to pick one that I'm especially fond of, it's um, it's this one in the in the chapter on the QWERTY keyboard. And what it shows is a London Telegraph office around 1890. And it shows all the operators in a big room sitting in front of 
printing telegraphs. And printing telegraphs were actually the first teletypes. You typed a message on one end, and it came out on the other end on something kind of like a stock ticker, stock ticker tape. And these were actually around since the 1840s. They, the very first one was um, invented right around the time of the Morse Vale telegraph. But they were kind of finicky and unreliable for a long time. But by the 1870s, 1880s, they were um, uh, in widespread use, especially in Europe. Uh, but the interesting thing about them is they used piano keyboards. They didn't use the QWERTY keyboard. So, and they, and they remained in use really until World War I, right? About 1915 or so uh, in Europe. And so in, well into the 20th century, people were typing on piano keyboards and what I love about the illustration is that it shows this huge room full of dozens of big burly men with their giant 19th century mustaches. And they all seem like they're sitting at little tiny toy pianos. <laughs> so it's only funny because we don't really write on piano keyboards today. But, you know, we could have. We almost did. Uh, most writing machines before the, ty- the, the typewriter that prevailed had, had interfaces just like these. And, um, and if we had them, just like those guys sitting at their little tiny toy pianos uh, would take it for granted too. I'm also really fond of a lot of the images of cameras that are shaped like guns because you know we have we have this language of shooting photographs the the language of photography um, trigger the flash, shoot the photograph. There's a lot of kind of violent firearms rhetoric in in the language of photography. So it was it was really enjoyable for me to recover some of those early cameras dating back to the 1850s that, that really were designed to look like a gun. What did you write about Pythagoras and calculating machines? Uh, partly because I was so interested in musical keyboards. As I traced the, the writing keyboard back to its musical predecessors through those those little toy piano printing telegraphs, and then from that to uh, other kinds of experimental writing machines, and then back to musical instruments themselves to try to think about, you know, how did it come to be that uh, that we would control things with an array of, of lever-like switches with our fingertips? Um, it it led me to my surprise to um, the theory of Greek harmony, and and Pythagoras was one of the great mathematicians of the classical world, and the first great musical theorist as well. Because for Pythagoras, music and math were inseparable, and it's really because of Pythagoras that Western music is so mathematical. Um, and so, partly what what he was defining were the um, the harmonic intervals uh, of the octave. And the relationship between different pitches, which ones are consonant, which ones sound good together, and which ones are dissonant, which ones don't sound good together. And, um, uh, and for Pythagoras, this was both, um, you know, aesthetic. It was about the pleasure of sound and music, but it was also mathematical. It was about these eternal ratios of, um, of, of pitch that... Um, uh, that confirmed that what sounds good is somehow kind of wired into the mathematics of the world. I, I'm not sure that we we think that quite so much anymore, but um, it that assumption really shaped Western musical theory for many centuries. So um, 
you know, Pythagoras is important because he establishes this connection between keyboarding and mathematical reason that I think, I think is with us to this day in calculating machines and even our computer keyboards. I, um, uh, to do things with the fingers, to access the mathematical ratios of harmony with the fingers, it made the fingers into, it made the fingers mathematical. It it kind of mapped math onto the human body at the fingertips. And, you know, I have a chapter there in this book called Counting on the Body. And it's about, it's it starts off being about finger counting. And, you know, it, it shows that no, not finger counting isn't something that everybody does. Finger counting is a, is a culturally learned practice that children learn. And Italian children count on their fingers differently than American children. Um, uh, the English count on their hands differently than the Germans. And there are just lots of, of differences about how it works. And there are some cultures that don't count on their fingers at all. So my point was, you know, here's a very early moment where, where mathematical reason, mathematical knowledge does get mapped onto the fingers through a touch interface, and that that touch interface through subsequent centuries has kept uh, has kept math in our fingertips, has made our bodies out of math out there at their out there at the tips. Can you explain to the audience why von Neumann is so relevant to your book's research? I know him most from his insistence on game theory. So I don't really touch the game theory. I, you know, I pick up von Neumann just a little bit um, in some of the sections about cybernetics and early computing, where he was so influential. And so, you know, I think I would say the broader debate about cybernetics and the the Macy conferences in the 1950s that von Neumann was a part of, um, I, that I think that whole context and the debates about the analog and the digital um, and the cybernetic, that's important to a a chunk of this book early on. I, I guess I would say that I don't think von Neumann himself is probably uh, a central player. Was there an oral history method or some other fieldwork methodology that you used to collect information from or for your research? I wouldn't really call it a methodology unless talking to people at cocktail parties is a methodology. Maybe that's the best methodology. Um, you know, I think I mentioned uh, at the outset switches is something that everybody knows personally and they all have something to say about it and that was a really amazing experience to have a research project that absolutely everybody knew something about so um you know unfortunately oral history most of the people from the uh periods that i work on are long gone and so i don't have much oral history access to them and um um but I did because this is the 150th anniversary of QWERTY. I, I will tell you a, a fun little anecdote, which is just that uh, one of the, the machinists for the first typewriter um, was a man named Matthias Schwalbach, uh, a very talented German machinist in the 1860s and 70s in Milwaukee. Uh, and um, he made little or no money from the the patents or the invention, um, but he was absolutely instrumental to making it work. And as we celebrated the anniversary of the QWERTY keyboard here in Milwaukee last summer, um, his great, great, or was it great, great, great grandson, Randall Schwalbach reached out to me um, uh, just to connect. And so I was very pleased to meet one of the descendants of one of the designers of the QWERTY keyboard, which is truly is Milwaukee royalty. 
who makes up the intellectual history of the development of switches? And like you, Dr. Puskar, researchers who have studied and written about it, who are they? Well, there isn't a huge amount on mechanical switching per se. There's a lot about the digital, obviously, and I'm heavily influenced by uh, media studies and technology studies scholars like um, and Catherine Hales, Bruno Latour, uh, Donna Haraway. I, these were just foundational figures for me. Um, uh, more recently, there have been a couple of really interesting books that are interested in similar kinds of finger-activated devices. Rachel Plotnick's Power Button from just a couple of years ago is a really great history of single push buttons right around 1900 and the power dynamics um, around them. Uh, Roger Mosley, who is a musicologist, wrote a, a, a great recent book um, called Keys to Play. And uh, that was especially useful for me as I tried to get my head around musical instruments. Um, uh, uh, and I guess I'd just add that there's there's a whole subset of media studies scholars these days who are interested in material media, but with, you know, kind of with the the lowly or neglected things that aren't quite the main event. So I'm, I'm thinking of people like Caitlin Benson Allot on television remote controls, you know, rather than the television screen, or my colleague here at UWM, Jocelyn Sapaniak-Galise, who works on cinema, but wrote a really great book about movie theater seating in the 20th century, uh, or Matt Kirschenbaum on word processing. So, you know, I think this is the kind of um, uh, material media studies world that I'm um, most influenced by and indebted to. And I'd, I'd be very honored if anyone saw the switch as part of their conversation. For your New Books Network audience, can you tell them more about Chapter 6, which is titled Darth Vader's Nipples? Because I wanted to know more about some of the media and literature that you uh, researched. Yeah, well, that one has received a fair amount of attention so far. Uh, it was also the most fun to write. And it's really just a, it's a chapter that's about something I noticed along the way as I was looking at fanciful robots, science fiction robots, early century um, mechanical exhibits of, of robot, remote controlled kind of robot figures, um, drawings and illustrations and so on. And that is that so many of them had uh, up high in their torso, two switches or two buttons, roughly where human nipples would be. And, you know, as I started to look at, look at this, I just thought, you know, this is a, there was a kind of cultural pattern here that needs explaining. Why do so many cyborgs and robots have buttons high up on their chests? And, you know, it's titled Darth Vader's Nipples, but a lot of the robots that I show, you know, really clearly have mechanical actual nipples in one way or the other. And so in trying to understand this, it became clear that um, that this was sort of visual shorthand so that people can see that these robots, though they're approximating the human, are a little bit not fully human. And I know that sounds counterintuitive, so I'll try to explain what I mean. That if you go back to the 18th century, one of the things that they were during the 18th century was trying to figure out um, uh, what distinguishes women from men, especially in a mechanical way, as they experimented with a um, mechanistic view of the human body. And in an exceedingly sexist way, they concluded that um, 
women had an excess of machinery. There was just too much. There was too much plumbing. There was too much extra. Um, uh, uh, There's too much lactation equipment on their chests, right? And men, again, by the same prevalent sexist standards, men were more mind. Women, they had too much body, too much extra body, too much machinery. And nipples became the symbol of that. But here's the interesting part. It's not just uh, women's nipples, right? It was actually men's nipples too, which is why well into the 20th century, men and white men in particular, uh, there was just as much of a taboo, taboo about male nipples as there was about female nipples. And the reason was <clears throat> that in both cases, nipples connoted a kind of not quite humanness, almost human. No one would say that women weren't human. It's just that they weren't as good of humans. And that was applied not just to women in sexist ways, but often to non-white people in racist ways. And so many of the figures that you find, many of the the early century, mid-century, actual mechanical working robots, they're actually imitating a kind of savage monster, right? And so how do you show that they're a savage monster? Well, they have their shirt off, right? Because white people, which is to say civilized people, um, don't appear that way. And so the mechanical people that this book traces are actually, in many cases, racist caricatures. And so Darth Vader is a kind, is a version of that. He dresses all in black. He has turned to the dark side. He's excessively brutal. And he's voiced even by a a very famous uh, African-American actor. And so when you put his little bank of switches up on his chest, even though they're not, you know, visibly nipple-like, once, uh, once you lay out the history of how that visual iconography came to be through the whole 20th century, it becomes pretty clear that even Darth Vader is part of this long history in which uh, uh, pectoral switches signal subhumanity for men and women both. And if you had to change or alter anything about your book in retrospect now, what would it be? <laughs> Oh, it's too early for regret, Nathan. It just came out. Um, I mean, there were so many things I wished I could have fit in. So I suppose, I suppose there are things like that. There was a, there's an unwritten chapter about women and domestic automation. So many of those 1950s advertisements for the House of Tomorrow um, are really geared toward women, and so many advertisements in which a woman's hand in a white glove is reaching out to push a button, and so there are plenty of things like that that uh, I would have loved to have touched on. But you know, as Samuel Johnson said of John Milton's Paradise Lost, no one wished it longer. So I think it's good I left him out. And what was most vital to getting the public to use switches? And today, what is the most popular form of this innovation? Well, hard to say. I mean, it's clear that electrification, there was a, you know, there was a a substantive change. I mean, I think that the typewriter from 1873 inaugurated a a kind of fascination with with pushing what the typewriter calls keys, but really what you're functioning as, as kinds of switches and buttons. But it was electrification that really made it possible to expand that to lots of other areas. And so, you know, really, if, you, if I think about what popularized the switch, it's probably domestic automation in, 
And though we don't think of it this way, you know, the light switch on the wall of your house is a, is a remote control. It's an early remote control. And it was as fascinating and as magical seeming as any other remote control would have been, right? That you could walk into a room and you wouldn't have to go over to the gas light to light the gas light. You could just from the doorway touch a switch and a light on the center of the ceiling would turn on far away. So that kind of that kind of domestic automation really is uh, absolutely of a part with, you know, what we have today on our cell phones where you can lay in your bed and turn the furnace on or off. Um you know, we do that and we think, oh, thank God it's not the old days when we had to go down to the basement and stoke the furnace. I can lay here in bed and pop it up a couple degrees. But the same fascination with um, flipping a light switch from the wall was also there. And, you know, early electrification, early lamps didn't have switches. The switch was the plug. So switches didn't come in right with electrification. They gradually developed as houses became wired in different ways. Um for more and more convenience, less and less effort, more and more remote kinds of operations. And I think that's where, that's probably where um, popular culture really started soaking up the magic of the switch. You mentioned that you forgot something about women's history that you did not put in the book. Did you input anything about gender and sexuality? There's a lot. Yeah, I would say that gender is probably the dominant identity category that I work with and through. Um, there's, you know, there's some about race as well, um, less about sexuality per se. But, you know, gender is so close to issues related to labor and um, um, power, strength, um, that that other kinds of gendered um, biases and disadvantages and inequalities um, end up getting routed through switching too. So, I mean, typewriting, again, is, is, a, is a great example. We all know that between 1870 and 1930, women went from being 10% of the typing workforce to 90% of the typing workforce, right? They completely took it over in just, just about 50 years. <clears throat> and, you know, people have argued about why that is, Um but I, you know, I think one of the things that I try to show is that men were also fleeing from the typewriter. And one of the reasons I think they were trying to get away from it was that it was stigmatizing. Because I talked before about the kind of the prosthetic cyborg things that keep me together, the screws in my knee, the glasses that I need to read, um, the fillings in my teeth. I can't be, I can't seem or appear to be fully and capably human without those things. Once the typewriter made it possible to write perfect, perfect writing, anybody could do it, even women who had been long excluded from learning the right kinds of handwriting that were thought appropriate for the business world. They were taught an inferior kind of handwriting called ladies' hand, and men were actually taught the kind of the most florid and the most uh, decorative, but also what was deemed the most professional kind of handwriting. Well, typewriting obliterated that difference, and women could do it too. And once it did, uh, I think men recognized that there was this machine that they were dependent on. They didn't want to be dependent on it. They wanted to try to recover an ideal of, they would have thought, uh, less mediated, unmediated writing using just a pen. And that to use this machine, sure, it might help 
certain kinds of people write just as well as them, but they wanted to be the people that didn't need mechanical assistance. Right. And so, you know, there are a lot of places uh, in this book where I'm looking very closely at the ways in which gender inequality gets managed in different ways um, through switching. And it, it goes both ways because, you know, in truth, women were able to follow the typewriter to higher wages, safer working conditions, more autonomy and independence, uh, an entirely different career, entry into the more lucrative white collar space of the office, even if they were limited and where else they could go there. So it was a beachhead and a really important one for what came later in the 20th century. So gender is, a, is, I think, the most decisive of the identity categories where switching is concerned. Star Trek weaponry versus real-life warfare. What does the switch contribute to both of those? Well, I mean, I guess I think it can, it contributes the same thing. It's just that Star Trek weaponry, sci-fi weaponry makes it show up a little better. And we can kind of see what we're doing with our real guns when we look at what we're doing with our TV and movie guns. And that is we, um, we kind of built a, we built a machine that can turn life on and off from a distance instantaneously with extraordinarily little effort, just as little effort almost as, um, uh, pushing a button on a remote control. I know there's more to shooting, obviously, like uh, aiming. So there's certainly skill involved, but there's there's certainly much less skill involved than there is with the kinds of human violence people perpetrated against each other before the age of firearms. Um, uh, it just made it easier. And so, you know, when I looked at the Star Trek phaser, <laughs> pardon me, I realized that, um, uh, you know, it looks a lot like a TV remote control. And I started researching, well, where did the phaser come from? And sure enough, uh, one of the set designers from the 60s noted at a, or at a convention recently that he thought that they had modeled it off of a Magnavox TV remote control. And sure enough, I, I think they did. I think it was this remote control called the Magnavox Phantom from the early 1960s, which which came out just a year or two before. And it looks a lot like a phaser from the TV show. But of course, you use it to change your channel on your TV. And if you watch those old early Star Treks and look at what happens to someone when they're shot with a phaser, they look a lot like they just got turned off. They glow a little bit. And then they kind of disappear, just like the picture went away. Right? And so there's a kind of there's a way in which Star Trek is fantasizing about a kind of shooting that looks just like TV, and that's you know a little narcissistic, obviously. Uh, everything turns into TV on TV, but at the same time, it's not wrong to think about shooting as taking a step toward that already, right? from the age of say sword fighting. Um, uh, you're getting closer to this ideal where a single flick of a finger can uh, end a life, turn people off for good. Right? So it's no accident, I think, that the very first TV remote control from the 1950s, you know, a good seven years or so before Star Trek, uh, it was called the Zenith Flashmatic. And it was actually shaped like a pistol. You had to point it at the TV, aim and fire the advertisements for it show a woman in an easy chair shooting her TV with a kind of sci-fi ray gun. Right? So there's, there's this kind of feedback and feed forth, right? Back and forth between um, 
between science fiction imagination and our most pedestrian and taken for granted realities. And, you know, that's, that's what I wanted to try to get to beneath the surface of, of really American gun culture. Your analysis of the U.S. military's radar guns, and especially IBM, were intriguing. Why does IBM come up so much in the switch? Oh, well, thank you for that, first of all. Uh, uh, IBM, you know, IBM dominates the user interface of so many different machines that have switches on them, and that's the short answer to why they... Uh, they're leading one of the leaders of modern computers uh, in the workplace, but they're also producing electric typewriters, um, early on punch card machines for computers. Um, uh, and so in the business world, right, they're not in the home, really. <clears throat> they're in the business world, but in the business world, IBM is really decisive. And I think the second reason for IBM is that, you know, their design um, – uh, is so amazing that that, that mid-century modern look that so many people today find desirable for their furniture and their architecture, uh, it, it's just as appealing when you see it on, you know, an IBM Selectric typewriter, uh, uh, extraordinarily elegant machines. Uh, and one of those, you know, since you mentioned the, um, uh, uh, the Sage um, early warning radar system, the the terminal that I talk about in that book, which is operated with a light gun. It's a kind of precursor to the computer mouse, but the operator has this little gun that shoots shoots light and it interacts with a with a very early computer screen. I mean that is also just a very beautiful interface um, for what is what is in effect a weapon to launch interceptors back at a, a feared Soviet missile or bomber strike. And so you know the fact that IBM, <coughs> excuse me, the fact that IBM was able to make so many switches practical, but also make them so beautiful. I think that was really one of the reasons um, why switching, why switching became um, aesthetically uh, appealing as well as just practically efficacious. Describe haptic first personhood and what other omnipresence is possible for the future of switches can it also be disembodied well haptic first personhood is a concept i bring up late in the book where i'm really trying to think about you know if switches are so important to us shouldn't we think more about touch and maybe a little bit less about sight sight has traditionally been at the top of the hierarchy of the human senses the most important the most valuable and touch has often seemed to be one of the lowest. Right? Um, uh, so I, you know, I was trying to think about why, why, why is touch so far down in the rankings, and what would it, what would it take to think of ourselves as feeling and touching creatures just as much as we think of ourselves as seeing creatures? You know, if you just, if you even think about the language you use for. For thought, most of it is visual metaphors, right? You have insights or you have vision, right? If you're a great leader, um, we don't usually talk about touch quite as much. So I wanted to think about ways in which even being a self, even being a first person, 
might get generated through our touch practices rather than just our visual practices. And you know, so when we talk about first personhood, and that's a phrase that, uh, that we use to talk about some way of representing ourselves. You don't, no one ever goes around and says, I'm a first person. You just say, I'm me. Right? But we do say first personhood when we know that there's a, another layer of representing yourself. So when you wrote something and you use the pronoun I, now at one remove, that I is the first person. That I is you, but it's over there. It's on the page. Right? It's a first person perspective. Ex uh, and it has to be called first person to remind everyone that it is you, even though it's not a part of you anymore, that it's something else materially. And we see that all the time in cinema, TV, and art, where, you know, if you ever see a movie where you have a kind of first person view looking as if from the eyes of a character in the movie, you've been displaced into that other viewpoint, but you know I'm seeing as that person would, would be seeing. Uh, and so I wanted to think about what would it be like to do that physically rather than visually or grammatically. And so haptic first personhood is a way to think about doing that. And I use the example of video games, right? There are these things called first person shooters, one of the most common video games, most popular video games in the world today, where you inhabit the visual perspective of somebody with a gun and, you know, you run around and you, sh you shoot people and things. And, but is the first personhood of a first person shooter limited just to visual perspective or could it have haptic uh, properties too? And I think it can. And I think the, the place where it does is not just where the visual coincides your frame of reference with the represented frame of reference or viewpoint of the character, but in the physical too. And I, I sort of argue that if you look at a modern console video game controller, they really are shaped a little bit like pistols. There's a trigger button, you hold a kind of stock, your thumb is up on a joystick like it's a hammer. And so even though we don't think of these as gestural controllers, like on the Nintendo Wii, the truth is that when you're doing one gesture, shooting a gun, they actually are gestural controllers. That the video game console controller is a kind of surrogate gun. And so at the level of touch, we're inhabiting the act of shooting and we're feeling the kind of the power and the pleasure of being dislocated into that first person shooter's perspective, just as we are visually by what happens on the screen. And then so by extension, if that happens with, with the video game controller, maybe it's happening everywhere else too, right? It might actually be that whenever we're pushing buttons, we're having a kind of haptic first personhood that I get to experience myself here by seeing my actions dislocated over there. When I push that garage door opener and the garage door went, goes up, I did that. But I didn't do it here. I did it over there, dislocated, just like it kind of was with the, um, the video game controller and the distance to the screen. So really, haptic first personhood is about, is about how we come to have a self. We come to perceive ourself only at a remove. Uh, by seeing from a distance, but also by touching from a distance. And I think all of our, many of our button-based, switch-based controls, especially when they're remote controls, they put a little separation between me, whatever that is, and this thing called a self, something that really can register as a real solid, knowable me, but only because the switch gives me the distance to perceive it. And are you doing any upcoming appearances or travels related to your book? 
Uh, I'm sure I will be, but for now, nothing on the schedule except next week when I'll be on the morning show, a syndicated show on Wisconsin Public Radio, uh, Wednesday of next week. And any final thoughts for our New Books Network audience? Uh, just to say thanks for listening uh, and to remind everyone, I think that you turn this podcast on by clicking switches and you'll turn it off that way too. Uh, I just think it's so important to remember um, the invisible things around us, the stuff that we take for granted that we no longer notice for doing uh, and to observe it. And I, I hope people will enjoy observing their own switching behavior and they might be a surprise by how extensive it is just as I have been, and just how much of their daily lives have been translated into the rigid logic of on and off. And I'd just like to thank you, Nathan, for such an enjoyable hour. I'm grateful. You listen to an original podcast recording of the New Books Network and your host, Nathan Moore. Our audience can thank Jason Puskar for contributing an episode about his book, The Switch, an on and off history of digital human. Until next time, farewell. Farewell.